Well, I knew it was going to be a good morning. For those of you who here early last week, you heard me tell the story about my coffee. And uh, I went ahead and made my own this morning. No soap in this coffee. I feel better. Um, but uh, there is a uh, little uh, cartoon a friend of mine who's in Summit sent to me. I thought I'd go ahead and read this to you. It's pretty good for those of you who can't see it. In the back, Adam and Eve are being kicked out of Eden. It says, our resolution last year could have been less fruit. But no, we decided to go with trust people more, right? So uh, come on, man. It's early, but that's funny. People I showed that to at 4 p.m. were laughing. I guess it's 6.30. It's just, it's not the same. (laughs) All right, well, we'll move on. Uh, The book of Genesis, as just by way of reminder, it's broken up, right, into two parts, you got four events, four people, and that's what we want you to remember. Four events, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So as we go through Genesis, both this spring and then next fall, you will be able to have just a handle on this book, and then you'll be able, in those large kind of chapters, you'll be able to fill in the gaps and walk people through the book of Genesis. Talk about the themes, talk, talk about who the main, main people are, the key verses. You'll be able to own this book in your head um, and hopefully the implications. So uh, chapter one, when we looked at that, I titled that the creation of the world. Hopefully you have that chart and you're following along, giving it your own title, what you think the key verses are. There's nothing magical. There's nothing inspired about the key verses. It's what you think when you look at it, what helps you, what is the content, and then what questions do those chapters, what do they raise? I hope that in your group time that you're making note of those questions. And then as um, you're spending time with us during the week, uh, you're attempting to answer some of those and coming back and having profitable discussion. Because there's no way, as I've said, in this short time that we have together, I'll be able to cover all that ground. And there are certainly some questions that I know you asked um, studying the chapters for this week. So chapter one's creation of the world. Chapter two, creation of man. Chapter three, paradise lost. Chapter 4, I entitled Brother's Keeper. Are you your brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Um, Chapter 4, we saw the ungodly line of Cain. But then in chapter 5, we see the godly line of Seth. Hopefully you spent some time looking at that. You see in chapter 5 how, just as God said, sin and rebellion was going to lead to death. That's exactly what happens. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, he chooses Enoch. He chooses Noah. What we see here is that God creates man in his image to have a relationship with him so that they would reflect his glory. But then man rebels. But God in his grace, in his love, in his kindness, in his compassion, reaches out to God, to man and pursues man, has a plan for man. And it, it begins to unfold through these chapters. Despite the rampant wickedness of man, God always has a remnant. And so we looked at Noah this week. And you see, Noah is a familiar passage to many of you. You, If you grew up in Sunday school, or maybe even didn't go to church, you've heard of Noah and the great flood. But you don't want to miss the theology behind this. We get caught up in the ark and the animals and what all that means. And here's what you need to understand. Is that the the people were wicked. And that God, in his justice, in his holiness, judged Noah the inhabitants of the earth, but he spared Noah and his family. Those who trusted in the ark 
were saved from the flood of judgment. And it's a picture of exactly what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. For those who have trusted in the cross, in the son, who have trusted in the provision of the ark, they are spared of the flood of judgment that is to come. There's a ton of implication here that hopefully you looked at. In chapter 6, in verses 1 through 4, if you're filling out your chart, the question you're going to ask yourself is, who are the Nephilim? Great question. I'm not going to answer it up here. But I will tell you, go look at soniclight.com. Great resource there. Dr. Constable walks you through several options. It's a hard passage. Uh, Chapter 7 is the flood. Chapter 8, the promise. Never again, never again am I going to flood the earth like I did this time. Judgment's going to come, but it's not going to come by way of flood. Not like this. And God makes a covenant with Noah. In chapter 9, you see the, the, uh, the rainbow and you see the establishment of government. Right here is the first time you see where um, God institutes government. In chapter 10, you see um, Noah's family. And then chapter 11 is where I want us to spend our time. And just to give you a little bit of background, chapter, this is, can be a little bit confusing. Chapter 10 gives a record of Noah's descendants, beginning with Japheth, Ham, and Shem, in order to show the origin of Israel and her neighbors. Okay? This, hang with me, because it's important when we get to chapter 11 and look at the Tower of Babel. From Japheth was born a collection of nations that would eventually form to, to the north of Israel. This is the table of nations. Where did these nations come from? They're going to be a key factor later on throughout the, the book of the Old Testament. Because this is where Israel's enemies and allies are going to come. From Ham was born the future inhabitants of Canaan and Nimrod. And this is where Assyria and Babylon will later come. And Babylon is throughout scripture a theme of, in uh, a, a picture of rebellion against God. But from Shem... In God's grace and in his mercy comes Abraham and David and later, Jesus. You see, these are more than just a a list of names. Moses is trying to show the Israelites as they're fleeing from Egypt where they came from, who they're related to, okay, where where their surrounding neighbors, what their background is. So chapters 10 and 11 are not written in chronological order. Chapter 11 explains the cause God confuses the people's language and scatters them across the earth. Chapter 10 explains the effect. And you have these table of nations. And that's where, that's where I want us to, to look is, is Genesis 11. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 9 because I think this is so key. And it's so relevant and applicable today. All right, so let's look. I'm going to read it to you. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this may sound innocent. This may sound um, inconsequential, just at face value. But if you know, based on 
chapter 9 and throughout, what God had told them previously was that they weren't supposed to gather as one people. What were they supposed to do? Multiply and fill the earth. God was very clear with them. Verse 5, and the Lord came down. This is key to this text. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, they will just continue to live wickedly. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And the the extent of evil will just go unchecked. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building, the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. This is from where Babylon will arise, a perennial enemy of Israel and God's people. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, one of my goals in our time together is not just to to give you a fish, Right? But to teach you how to fish. And I think it's really important, especially when you're reading books like Genesis and books that are um, less familiar to us in the Old Testament, that we understand how are we to read and understand the Bible. And so there's three questions that I always ask myself when, I'm, when I take a text like this. And the, the first and one that you need to ask, the first question is, is more of historical. What did it mean? What did it mean? In other words, Moses wrote at a specific time for a specific purpose to a specific people. And in order to understand the theology and the implication for our lives, the first thing we've got to do is not get into a room of guys together and go, well, what does it mean to you? That's not helpful. The meaning resides in the text with the intent of the author. The application is true to our lives, and we want to find that, but we will misapply Scripture if we miss this step. We've got to find out what did it mean? What's the historical, cultural context, and what did it mean to that original audience? It's the first step to understanding what Scripture teaches. The second step is you're looking for that timeless principle. You're looking for that theological truth. What you're going to ask here is you're simply going to ask, what does it always mean? What does it always mean? What's the, what, what's the idea that was communicated to the people, the original audience back here? And in a nutshell, what then would we say, hey, here's that timeless universal truth that was true then and that will also connect to today. And see, if you skip this, if you skip this step, which is so often done, it leads to all sorts of erroneous interpretations. Let me just give you an example, for instance. You know the story in the book of Judges of a man named Gideon. And what do we know about Gideon? He throws out a fleece. A couple of people are awake. That's good. All right, he throws out a fleece. If you skip this step in the middle of what is the timeless principle, what's that timeless truth, do you know what people do? Well, you know what? You want to know how to determine God's will? Go get a fleece, throw it out in your front yard. Gideon did it, so therefore, we run over here, I should do it. Or we, um, 
We'll look at like the book of Acts and we'll go, well, see when they trusted in Jesus Christ over here and they spoke in tongues, therefore we come over here and we go, we should speak in tongues when we trust in Jesus Christ. Really? Is that what it's teaching? Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is it describing a time of what happened or is it prescriptive trying to teach you a principle? And there's a big difference, gang. Or another mistake we'll make is, is we'll read in the Old Testament, we'll read the book of Leviticus, and we'll go, well, man, all those laws and regulations, man, I don't know what that has to do with my life. And so we just skip it all together. Instead of going, what's that timeless truth that then has application for today? You with me? Or in the New Testament, we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul talks about food sacrificed to idols. We'll read that one kind of like, man, when I go to Tom Thumb, I'm not seeing meat sacrificed to idols. Skip chapter 9. Right? But if we understand that universal principle, if we go, oh, wait a minute, Paul. You're talking about me loving my brother. You're talking about my love for my brother and for God limits the freedom I have. That's what you're talking about right there. Now, I may not struggle with meat sacrificed to idols. But I do understand that what you're trying to say here is in that day, in that context, when they went to Tom Thumb, it's exactly what they're faced with. There was meat sacrificed to idols and you could buy that at a discount. And then there was meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols and it was a premium price. So you had two Christian brothers walk up, right? David and I, we walk up and we're at Tom Thumb together. And I I wanna buy the meat sacrificed to idols because I'm sitting there going, man, I don't care about idols. I don't believe in idols. It's cheap. I'm buying that. I'm going to save a dollar. I wasn't a part of that worship. David looks at me and goes, man, what are you doing? You're, you're buying meat sacrificed to idols right now. And that, that, that disturbs me. Well, but David, I'm just, I didn't, I, would, I didn't participate in that sacrifice. I didn't, I don't believe in idols. I know, but that, that, and so there was conflict. And so Paul's point there is, hey, Your love for your other person limits the freedom, the liberty that you have. Care for your weaker brother. Can you think of context today where that's true? Where our love should limit our liberty? Absolutely. That's the universal principle. So I not only want to show you up here based on Genesis 11, I not only want to just give you the Tower of Babel, I want to teach you how to read it. What did it mean? What does it always mean? You're not struggling with, if I said, hey guys, meet me in downtown Dallas. We are going to build a tower that reaches heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We'll meet there at noon. Probably no one's going to show up. But that doesn't mean we don't struggle building towers, trust me. We build towers every day. There's a truth there that we need to get our arms around. The final question you ask yourself is, what does it mean today? This is the bridge to understanding how to read your Bible. If this is all new to you, we've got resources that we can make available. We teach classes on how to read the Bible, but it's helpful. And when you then ask that question, so what did it mean? You got to look at the structure of the text. What do I see? And I'll just show you. Verses one through nine. Take a look at this. Take a look at how this passage is arranged. It starts with an introduction and then it has a conclusion that mirror one another, don't they? 
It starts with one language in one location, but it ends with many languages in multiple locations. And look at the contrast. I mean, my, my 12-year-old little girl could see this. There's a huge contrast here. It's not hard, gang. It's not, it's not difficult. It just takes a little time. What do you see? You see this contrast with the plans of man, which are at odds with the plans of God. Plans of man, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to remain together. We don't need God. We don't need God. We will rely upon each other. We will rely upon our own technology, ingenuity, and we will build a tower for ourselves, living independently of God. We won't be dispersed, and if we rely upon each other, we'll be okay. Sound familiar? And what's the plans of God? Hey, gang, no, 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 no. (laughs) You have one language, and your wickedness has no bounds. I'm going to confuse your language. And you know what? You don't want to disperse. I will disperse you. And that's exactly what he does. But what's central to all of this, gang, is verse 5. It's this idea that man is working so hard to achieve this level, to be like God, to make a name for themselves. And you have this this, um, idea that man is is striving to be like God, which sounds like Genesis, what, 3? And the whole idea of the temptation with Adam and Eve, you eat this and you're gonna, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. And so man's striving. They're making their way up there. And it's like God's looking down. It speaks of God like in human terms. It's like God, Psalm 2, the Lord is in, he- in the heavens and he scoffs. He, he's got to come down like, is that the best you got? You, you're trying to make your way up here? I'm going to come down. To see your pitiful attempts to reach me. And that's the idea. The grandeur and the majesty of God. Compared to man's futile attempts to be like him. So let me just show you. The historical. What is is the meaning of the text? What do I think it meant back then? You're going to see. It's not hard. After the flood. The plan of man conflicted with the plan of God. Specifically the plan of man was to make a name for himself. By building a city with a great tower that reached into the heavens. But the plan of God was for man to multiply and fill the earth while humbly relying upon him. Chapter 9, verse 1, very specific command. They were tower builders. We are tower builders. And we learn it from a young age. I've got four kids. It's just not hard to see. What's the, what's the first thing a little kid, what's the first word many kids learn? Thank you. Mine. Tower. Mine. This is mine. What happens in Y Youth League sports? Second grade girls I coached this week. You wouldn't believe it. You would have thought it was the Super Bowl. I mean, it's a, I mean, I literally, I sat there and I looked at one of the parents and I go, hey, please don't let me be become the man I don't want to become over a second grade girls basketball game. I mean, I just want to stay out of the paper, right? I mean, I want to win like anybody, but I don't want to win at that cost. I want to win, but I don't need to win. And some of these fellows around here, they need to win. And, and, it, and it concerns me. And you know why? What we do, even at a young age, those little girls, man, we're going we're gonna to win. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And not only will we make a name for ourselves, you know what? We're going to parade it around, baby. 
And at a young age, they're just watching what we do. It's kind of in your face. I'm number one. You know what? I'm a tower builder, baby. You see my tower? That's me. That's what we do. But it's not just second grade girls basketball. It's in business too. It's in education. Isn't it? Now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. Right? We're tower builders, gang. You know, have you seen my resume? Do you know what I've accomplished? Do you know where I graduated? Do you know my GPA? Do you know how fast I can run a 40? Man, when I was in high school, woo! You know who I dated? All right? Some of y'all need to take that one off. But that's what we do. Man, it's degrees, it's cars, it's homes, right? It's what our kids have accomplished. And we just, we just make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. It's education. It's even when we give, right? Hey, man, make sure my name's on that tower. I want everybody to know that I gave money here. That's what we do. We just build towers. We rely upon our, our health. And I don't need God. I've got it. We're tower builders. And the timeless truth here, gang, is man's ambition to make a name for himself and live independently of the Lord. It conflicts with the Lord's will for us. There's a constant conflict. You are a tower builder. And every time you seek to build that tower, every time I seek to build that tower, I'm in conflict with the Lord's will for my life. You know why? Because here's today's application for you. The Lord calls us to make whose name famous? His name. The the Lord calls us, guys, hey Blake, done. Done with your tower. It couldn't even stand up. It stinks, your tower stinks. And when you die, nobody's gonna remember. You better invest in what is eternal, and that is the word of God and the souls of men, and that will last. Don't quit building towers to make yourself famous. You live to make my name famous. Not your own monument. And gang, we live in Dallas, Texas. This is the mecca of tower building. You are in it. You are one of them, and so am I. And so we've got to repent. And so here's three questions I want you guys just to discuss in your groups. In addition to what you have, okay, if it helps you, great. If not, discard it. There's plenty to talk about, but real simple. Hey, what are the towers of today? Just think about it. I'm just asking general terms. Hey, what are today's towers? In other words, how do we attempt to live independently of the Lord and make a name for ourselves? talking about what are they out there in today's society. Second question, if that's true of what's of today's society, what about in this room? What are the towers in your life? And again, we all have them. I mean, mine goes much taller than that. What are the towers in your life? Is it financial independence, public recognition, professional accomplishment, a standard of morality? This whole idea of, man, I, I, my good's going to outweigh my, God, my bad, and God's going to be impressed with my resume, and I'm just going to build this tower, and, man, he's going to look at me and go, man, what a good job. Uh-uh. And then third, practically speaking, what do, what do you need to do to topple the towers in your life? 
What challenges are you going to face if you get busy knocking down towers? What pressure, what resistance are you going to face? And how can this group, how can it help you? Let me pray for you. Lord in heaven, I confess I am, um, I am a wretched man. And when left to myself, apart from community and isolated, Lord, I am constantly adding bricks to make my name famous, to bring glory to myself, to build my resume, to feel better about myself. And, and Father, I, I just don't stop and consider what I need to do, Father, to make your name more famous. I pray, Father, that today, that each of my friends here to, would just humble themselves, would have the eyes to see the towers, the huge monuments in their own backyards. I pray, Father, that you would uh, bring about conviction and courage and life change, Lord, that we'd get busy in changing the towers in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would help us to receive and to speak truth in the lives of one another, to do that with gentleness and kindness and respect. Some of us, Lord, we're walking around with big old towers and nobody has loved us enough to tell us the truth. And Lord, it's caused havoc in our marriages, in our workplace, the way our kids see us. And so, Lord, we repent of all that. Our towers are pathetic. And I pray you'd forgive us. I pray, Lord, that we begin building and purposing our lives for what your will and your purposes are. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, gang, uh, one of my good friends who helps me see the towers in my lives probably more often than I really like uh, is Jeff Ward. And um, Jeff is... uh, leads our external focus effort here at Watermark and just has done a, a great job of mobilizing our body. He's going to take one minute. He wants to share something with you. Hello. Hello. Good morning, guys. Hey, um, thank you, Blake. Uh, and thanks, Bobby, uh, for giving me just a couple of minutes to share with you guys. Um, so I'm on staff here, run direct, uh, director of external focus. And uh, I just wanted to share with you guys a real quick, an opportunity to really transform lives and really help guys whose towers have been yanked out from under them and rebuild them. And so just take a second. Imagine yourself growing up in East Dallas in the hardest of circumstances that you can imagine. And now imagine that the model for your life has been anything but um, what we've been studying in Genesis. And imagine that you start working in the bar scene and you start dealing drugs and you start uh, and you get married and you have a child with special needs and then um, you get divorced and you find yourself behind bars for the choices that you've made. And imagine that you've come to Christ uh, in jail, and now you re- recognize that you're a new creation and that you um, are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And imagine that through just nothing short of divine intervention and some medical technology, you're able to convince a believing judge that you are a new man, that you yourself have never done drugs, that the money was going to support a kid, and you find yourself um, outside of the prison in an early parole um, with a new, ne- new lease on life, but you've got no friends, you've got no place to live, you've got no support, and so what do you do? You start making the shelter scene, and, and, and you start talk, trying to talk to churches, and you get, you get some cold food, and you get a bed, and you get some old clothes, um, but you know that if you could just get a shot as you're growing spiritually, if you could get a shot at some work so that you could be all that God intended, so that you could rise above poverty, that you could begin to be financially sustainable, you yourself and your family, um, that you, you know you would have a new, a real new lease on life. And imagine that you come to a church 
that cares about you, that begins discipling you, that watches you grow in Christ and also connects you with a godly employer who gives you a second shot. So this is a story of Juan Rodriguez, a real guy that we're in, in relationship with who now is in his third week of working for a company here with a man sitting right here in this room. And if you had 10 minutes with Juan, he would tell you about how he is a new man, how he can provide for his family, he can be all that God intended, he can lead his family. He's talking about reconciling with his ex-wife, and you have an opportunity to do that. Benson and I have got some flyers back here if you'd like to learn more about how you can be part of a transforming story like that, and then invite you back next week after Summit. We're going to be in the loft sharing a little bit more of that vision. So thank you very much.